Just mentally picture it. You can hear it in your ears if you think about it. The Imperial March from Star Wars. I can't play it because I feel like that would be some weird copyright stuff that we can't even approach. But just imagine in your head Darth Vader coming down a dark hallway as he approaches ready to do something menacing. And that theme that plays in your head is the same theme that the Cleveland Indians will sense in their heads as the New York Yankees are introduced prior to their three-game best-of-three series, Indians-Yankees at Progressive Field. It all begins on Tuesday, and it is going to be crazy no matter what happens. We know it is completely unpredictable because you're adding another round to the randomness, and if you followed the Godcast for any amount of time, you know, we're embracing it. It is the Selby's Godcast. TJ Zuppi, Zach Meisel. What is up, brother? It's so weird to think that in a span of, what, 27 hours, a team season can end this week. Um, a best of five is short and unpredictable as it is, and now you make it a best of three. And in this case, I think you pit two really interesting but like mercurial teams against each other. And number one, I have no idea what's going to happen. And number two... I, with, like from the Indian standpoint, they could win two games, they could lose two games, they could go to the World Series. I mean, everything is on the table, in my opinion. And look, we knew this was going to be weird and crazy and wild and unpredictable. And we're here on the doorstep of October. And I have absolutely no idea what to expect. I was reading through the athletics predictions and like every single analyst's reasoning for making the picks they did was either like well I flipped a coin or I don't know I just looked at the team name and whichever one sounded better I went with because there's no way you can have any logical decision making with this this is this is going to be like March Madness on crack basically and I'm excited yay all the things I love. Um, you know, if you if you were to take all those predictions and throw them uh, against, uh, let's just say, teams in a hat, <laughs> who would do better? I, over the length of time, I think the, the team out of the hat might be just as, as equally good as the predictions that are fueled sometimes by analysis and just walks through what you think might happen based on the knowledge you have of the season that, that came before us. And that... How many times have we seen teams come in ice cold and they march their way all the way to, to the World Series? And other times, how many clubs have we seen just come in on fire? They look, they look unbeatable. And I think we're, we'll talk some about the, the 2017 Indians. It's a logical connection because it is Indians-Yankees once again. But there's no rhyme or reason to what happens because you just throw everything out that has taken place up to this point. Jose Ramirez comes in red hot. He might be the MVP this year. And you still look up on the scoreboard hmm. and it, there's zeros there. Shane Bieber comes in game one against Garrett Cole. And to this point, Shane Bieber has been almost untouchable. The only time he has been touched. Wait, let me think huh? about that. That's not the right phrasing. In any case, it's when Sandy Alomar left him out there for far too long in, in games that he shouldn't have been pitching in. And yet that doesn't matter because the Yankees could still come out and club three home runs against him. And you'd be down one game to nothing in the series. None, nothing matters and yet it all matters. I can't really get to the bottom of what I'm trying to say. Well, that's why Francisco Lindor said today on Monday that the past is in the past. Turn the page on to the next chapter. He loved these book metaphors all season. I don't know if he just started reading more or what. Um, it's, 
Just pulling a LeBron it's, and reading the first page of every novel that he <laughs> has in his locker. It's so weird because even in a 162-game season, as you said, you know, you learn more about teams. You feel like you have a good grasp of the identity of all of these teams. Now, that doesn't guarantee you anything in October, but at least you can say, like in 2017, we, the Indians were a good team. Like That was a really, really talented roster. I, um, I might make the case that that was their most talented roster since at least the Jacobs Field, Progressive Field era. Oh, without a doubt. I thought you were going to say something, uh, have a hotter take than that. With their, their best team ever? What's the take? What's, are they as good as 95? I think they were, as far as total talent goes, I think they were a better team than 95. <laughs> oh my goodness. Cleveland rocked the story of the 2017. No, that just doesn't ring have the same. Anyway, I, I think doesn't mean it was as fun or a magical or any of that stuff. It just total mind, talent. Were, what were they? 45 and 45 at one point. Okay, well the the 95 Indians started out of the gate what four and three. So checkmate. <laughs> well, hold on. So so I'm I'm kind of making the point though is that that team was 45 and 45. You know, we thought eh, this just isn't. This team doesn't have the the magic that the 2016 team did. And then they win 22 in a row, and they finished with some ridiculous... I mean, they were like 40-9 and nine or something to close the season, whatever they were. Um, you felt a lot differently after 162 than you did after 90. And so after 60 games, if you think you know anything about these teams, I think you're a fool. Um, look, we, we think we know that the Indians' offense is putrid, and it's certainly fair to say that. But if they played 162 games, it's possible you wouldn't have felt that way after 162 games. Although with this outfield and catching situation, I don't know. But the other point is, in talking to Yankees people, they have no idea what Yankees team is going to show up. This team, while the Indians were losing eight in a row, the Yankees were winning ten in a row. While the Indians were scorching hot to close out the regular season, the Yankees couldn't buy a win. So... These are two Jekyll and Hyde teams. You, you think you know, looking across the league, that the Dodgers are far and away the best, that the Rays are really, really good and poised to make a run. But when you only have 60 games to go by, when you're flipping over to October and none of what happened in the regular season really matters, and when you have a three-game series and a five-game series and you're doing all this you know, in neutral fields and then a bubble, we know nothing. This is going to be so random. And maybe being random will mean that the favorites meet up because that rarely happens too. Um, but this is so unpredictable. And if you're making predictions, I think you have to go into it assuming you're going to be wrong. I've seen, I, I think pretty much every team in the American League predicted to go all the way through to the World Series. I think the don't, American League so even. I don't think I've seen anybody go away from the Dodgers who were just ridiculous from start to finish. Did they have a cold and hot stretch? It was just them for all 60 games. Uh, incredible. And they'll be a tough team to beat. And knowing that, they'll probably just get swept in the first two games of this, of this <laughs> wild card zany postseason. And that's part of the Watch fun. Watch out for those scrappy brewers. And it's all, I, I mean, what's in but, the water but, over there. But think about it. They could just turn things over to an incredible bullpen. And if two games go their way, then good night. Thanks for I mean, coming, does anybody Dodgers. Wanna, like, does anyone want to play the Reds over there? They snuck in no. as the seventh seed. And no. like, I, they could no. make a run. No. I, I, don't, I would not be shocked by pretty much anybody making a run with the way things are set up. 
um, because the you, you could lose a really good team right there, right off the rip in the first round in a in a, a series that maybe is turned by a an error. That, see, that's what makes the postseason so crazy, is it? Because it's not these large samples. It, it could be a really good player making a really stupid play at the wrong time. Or it could be a really bad player who's not supposed to maybe even be in the lineup, is in there because of injury. And he, it's, it's somebody that never hits a home run, and he ends up hitting a huge home run. I'm thinking of Tony Fernandez in 1997, who's not even mm-hmm. supposed to be in the game, and he ends up providing the game winner in the uh, 1997 ALCS Game 6 that sent the Indians to the playoffs. It's it's part of the fun. It's also part of what drives you crazy, I'm sure, as someone that's trying to put together a team. But you could have uh, you know, Francisco Lindor coming up who has been pretty much the definition of offensively average this year, which is surprising. But who is to say that he can't just come up against Garrett Cole and hit a massive three-run home run? Is that out of the question? Uh, I don't think so. And Garrett Cole, if there's anything that he struggled with this year, it was giving up the home run ball. Um, yeah, maybe this maybe this is the sort of lineup that they actually could have some success against Cole, because for what all they they don't do, they stand they could still occasionally hit a big home run with Franmil Reyes, Jose Ramirez, Francisco Lindor, and, and Carlos Santana. And really, that's the only way to get to Garrett Cole, who was not out of this world this year, but still really really good. And then I look at the other end of things. The Yankees match up as a team that see a lot of pitches in their plate appearances. Are they going to knock Shane Bieber out after five innings? He could be just sparkling good, but maybe the pitch count's already up to 115 because they take so many pitches and they foul him off. And maybe he's struck out 10 guys, but he can't make it out of the fifth because of the number of pitches that he's thrown. I think this is a really fun matchup because of how well these two teams kind of mirror each other in that some of, the, of what they do well can be you know, taken away by the fact that they have Garrett Cole on the other side. Uh, but also some of the, the things that maybe clubs don't do well or maybe struggle with is something that could be accented by the team on the other side of the dugout. So I, I think this is going to be a fun one. I wish it was more than a three-game series. I would like to see these teams duke it out over five or seven. It's weird. It, it's almost like the – it's not that the farther you go in the playoffs, the more difficult it gets, but it – it is kind of like that this year because I think in the American League, I mean, the Rays are really good. The Twins are really good. The White Sox can be really good. The Indians we've seen can be really good. Oakland can be really good. The Yankees can be really good. Um, Toronto and Houston, to me, are probably the, the two worst teams in the American League, but they're formidable. They can certainly win a three-game series against anybody. And so to me, just the way it's set up, it's almost like it's it's – most difficult at the beginning like especially if you're the indians and you have the starting pitching advantage and you can't really capitalize on it in a three-game series against a tough opponent like the yankees but hey down the line in this you know the alcs which goes seven games maybe you can use it against oakland like that's you'd rather have your advantages i think early in this random ass three-game setup um it's weird and so i i don't you're right anything can happen in this series i mean Think back to 2017, and that series, the whole course of it shifted when Greg Bird, of all people, homered off Andrew Miller. Like, no one would have predicted that. Um, So anything can happen. Anyone can be a person who changes the complexion of a series, of a postseason run, of a season, really. And it's crazy to think if you're the Indians and you're thinking, man, 
we feel so good about having Shane Bieber go in game one against anybody, and <laughs> you have to match up against Garrett Cole, all of a sudden, you still feel good about that, but boy, I just, I can't not think about 2018 in the way Garrett Cole handled the Indians yeah. lineup. And I know it's a different lineup, but it's certainly and not it's a as, different as good Cole. of a lineup. It's a little yeah. bit of a different Garrett Cole this year, too. Again, he wasn't the out-of-this-world pitcher that he was uh, even before this year, but he was still really, really good. And any other year where Shane Bieber's not doing what he did, then maybe he gets a little bit more attention. But you're right. I mean, the, when you look at the, the starting pitching matchup with pretty much anybody, you, you love having the Bieber versus anybody in game one, but Cole is the one that minimizes that a little bit. It's part of what made this series really sort of scary for me, and it's the, a lot of uncertainty, too, with, with the Yankee lineup because I don't know if they are the team that went in cold. I don't know how much of that is because you had guys like Judge and Stanton trying to work themselves back into form. Can I really take anything away from the final week when they were struggling offensively? And then, you know, they weren't at full strength for so much of the year, so do I believe that the road splits are that much worse? You know, when they're on the road, they're not even close to being the same offense. I think, it was, I, think I saw 85 WRC plus on the road this year for the Yankees. But it's not the same Yankee lineup that you're going to see running out there right now with Stanton and Judge. And if those two guys look like Stanton and Judge, then think of how much that changes the offense with both of those guys and their ability to impact the game with just one swing. So there's so much uncertainty here with, with New York where I don't, I don't quite know what they are. Um, and I think you, you also, too, get caught up in what they have been in the past of, of a team that had so much in their bullpen. I think the Indians have the advantage there as far as Penn goes, and they certainly still have the advantage in the rotation beyond game one. But this Yankee lineup, I, I, don't know, I don't know what to make of it. So I, I, is, it a, is this a series we're going to have to outscore a juggernaut offense? Maybe. But this could also be a, a case where you have Judge and Stanton not performing like superstar players because maybe they still don't have their timing back. I, I don't know what to make of that. And keep in mind, these teams haven't played each other in 13 months. I mean, the Yankees have never seen the Cy Young version of Shane Bieber. They've never seen the new and improved Zach Plesak. They haven't seen Carlos Carrasco pitch like Carlos Carrasco in, in two years. So there's some differences there. I wonder if there will be a, a feeling out process between these two teams. It's, it's so strange. You know, you spend the entire season playing this regional schedule and then you get to the playoffs and it's, all right, here you go. Good luck. I, we, we have, you have very limited data and information <laughs> on these guys aside from Basically, just your scouts watching on TV. And what are we going to do without our notes? pitcher-hitter matchups? Oh, no. <laughs> These things determine yeah. what happens in the future. I did see... What is, it's only one series, I think, between teams that had faced each other in the regular season, if I'm not mistaken. Tampa and Toronto. I think that's the only one. So that's, that makes this there even was, more fun. Yeah, there was a day, and the standings changed by the minute over the last week, it seemed. Yeah, say whatever you want for the 60-game season. crazy. But that final, that final day was fun, just chronicling every team and what they were doing. Um, but there was a day at some point last week where I think like three of the four and maybe five of the eight matchups were all in-division matchups. And it was, I don't know, I, I want to see the newness, you know. But um, I guess it would have made more sense just because it's a three-game series and these teams have all played each other. Um, there wouldn't be that feeling out process. They know each other pretty well. But it's going to be interesting. I mean, I, like, I, you think about the battles the Indians and the White Sox have had this year, or even, I know the White Sox and Twins, like, 
it'd be fun if some of those teams played each other in the postseason for seven games. You know, you you never see that. You don't see it too often in the in the playoffs as it is. And remember, they weren't even allowed to play each other in the first round of the playoffs until what seven years ago, when the uh, or whatever they they switched that rule when the the new wild card came <laughs> oh, into play. I think. Yeah. That was weird. So many baseball rules that go back and look at who had home field in certain series. Remember '95? How the Indians? What? The Indians lapped the field in the regular season and then had to play. Boston had the home field advantage in the first round just because it was a divisional thing, and Boston couldn't play um, New York. New York, and then Seattle had it in the second round because of I think like a. There was something with the football team had a game or something, and they couldn't switch. I don't know. It was just <laughs> stupid. That sounds smart. Let's just have, let's decide home field that way. Uh, nothing crazy like an all-star game, though. So let's just make sure that that's... The... Um, yeah, so let's get into this series a little bit. Uh, we'll stay away from position, from by position breakdowns. I always I love that see in, in newspapers. Every, in every newspaper. Yes. Like, well, DJ LeMahieu so. against Cesar Hernandez. When in the hell do those two ever fight each other? <laughs> <laughs> why, why are those two men stuck? Uh, I mean, even pitchers tell us that. They still, they'll say, well, I'm not, unless, I guess you're in the National League, I'm not facing that guy. So I, I was listening to a radio show, I think last week, and they were going through, oh, I wish I could remember. I I think it was an NFL game. I, I'm not positive. They were going through each position group by position group, and then they had intangibles. And we were in week two, maybe? Like, how do you know which team has better intangibles based on what they, and that was, a, that decided it. That decided it was going to win, I guess. Oh, man. Uh, which team handed out Capri Sun at halftime and which team didn't? That's what I need to know. Like, what does that even mean? I, I, I don't know. Man. I was watching on Sunday uh, before baseball started and they were making NFL picks. And the thing that I realized is all NFL picks are Team A has this player and Team B doesn't have that player. And I'm pretty sure that player is going to be an X factor in this game. So I've got them taken and winning this game. That, that's That's... Every single NFL prediction I heard was just, they've got this player, that team doesn't have this player, he's going to be the difference. Well, I think you're, you're going to the wrong place for your predictions, because I'm sure those people didn't have Lions money line on Sunday, but oh, that's another yeah, story. Anyway. Right. Yeah, yeah, let's stop with the bragging, because we know that's all short-lived. How do you like the, the, the Yankees pitching match? I mean, I know it's the Indians' offense, and they've had their problems all season long, but how do you like the Tanaka... And then I don't, is it, they haven't announced what, whether it's Hap or Garcia in game three, if necessary, have they? I, I haven't seen it yet. But how do you feel about those matchups later in the series? So it's so easy to just fall back upon what you're conditioned to. And I think following the Indians for as long as we have, we think, oh, well, Garrett Cole owned them in 2018, even though it was a completely different lineup. And like you said, like Cole is a different pitcher now. Um, and then I think, oh, Tanaka, I remember when he... They couldn't hit that what, split finger in 2017, so that's a bad matchup. Again, totally different circumstances, different team, different everything. Oh, Jay Happ in Game 3, you know they can't hit soft-tossing lefties. Oh, Davey Garcia, you know they never do well with young kids they've never seen before. It's like, who, I, I find who do they do well with? I just hear all the negatives here. <laughs> like the like Kansas City 
washed up veteran right-handers, I think. <laughs> no, it seems like they also haven't given the Indians problems. I think it was just Justin Verlander. Oh, you know they own Justin Verlander because he's got Shelly a Duncan. five ERA against all of these Indians players that have not played here in seven years. Sure. Yeah, the Yankees are so weird. I mean, they had... Their bullpen has been such a strength for so many years. And they gave Zach Britton a lot of money. They gave Adam Adovino a lot of money. They gave Aroldis Chapman a lot of money. They have Chad Green. Um, Tommy Canely, I think, had Tommy John surgery. So he's not a factor. But, like, Adovino's been terrible. Um, the rest of them, like, are, are fine. I know Aroldis Chapman was out for a little bit. You know, they've relied on guys this year like Jonathan Holder and Luis Sessa who were like mop-up guys in the past few years um, and who I, I feel like the Indians have hit pretty well in the past. I don't know. I, their, their pitching is kind of backwards. Like, they don't really have a back end of the rotation, which isn't going to hurt them as much in a three-game series. Again, I, I think the Indians would have really liked to meet this team maybe in five or in seven instead of three. But at, their pitching is like, their whole team is, is Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, it's the lineup, too. You look at Gary Sanchez, who's just been awful. But of his 23 hits, 10 of them are home runs. So you, you can't feel too comfortable when he's in there. Um, I, I don't know. It's such a weird team. I almost feel like I, I've tried to think about like certain matchups, who might hit who well, um, which Indians relievers might fare well against that lineup. But it's like these teams, it's it's it could be day and night, two performances over two days. We've seen... The Indians score 14 runs, and we've seen the Indians score one run in three games. And it seems like there's no predicting when that's going to happen. Um, so I, I don't know. I, it I helps think, when like, you hit like, a timely said, like, the Indians... three-run home run. That is often when we see the Indians' offense take off. And the thing is, well, and that's in the playoffs, it's, that's... it's so unpredictable to count on power. But power can win you games when you do manage to hit those sorts of home runs. And they have some guys in the lineup. You know, For all we've talked about, all their inconsistencies and all the things that make you worry about them... They still do have an ability with a lot of guys that have slumped to just pop one out of the yard. And that's the thing. is That's why I'm not so concerned about the Yankees and who they might turn to. It's more to me like, is Carlos Santana going to wake up in time? I mean, he looked good over the weekend, but I mean, he looked good against Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh. We thought maybe that was him turning it around, and that was 30 games ago. Are you going to get production from Framil Reyes? I was sitting here saying he was going to hit 43 home runs before the season was shortened, and he ended up with nine in 59 games. So they need power from him. They, they, need, they need these guys to be threats. I feel like if you're an opposing pitcher and you're looking at this lineup, you're thinking, well, if I can just navigate through the top three, I'm sitting pretty. So you, Oh, you is Ramirez now hitting in, the, in the top three spots? Is he coming out with a mask on with different jerseys each time out? I that mean, that's, that's, good strategy. That's, that's the only way it seems like that the top three would be this threat. What is to stop somebody from doing that? Just put a full mask on, put the glasses on for Bobby Valentine. Actually, it didn't work at all. Uh, I think he got thrown out a second time. Uh, but yeah, fake mustache, put a different Bobby jersey Cox on. Bobby Cox is so jealous. <laughs> well, it's, you just got to get creative this time of year, you know? Why does Francisco Lindor all of a sudden start to look like a shorter... Wait, why is he... No, that can't be. I mean, if you've got to pull out all the stops, if the Astros can do anything it takes to win, whatever it takes, then 
I mean, you team. should have done that in 2016 when Michael Martinez waddled up to the oh plate. Oh, my gosh. I mean, God, even ESPN tries to do this nice, nice heartwarming Francisco Lindor documentary last night, and they just peppered throughout the whole thing as the Indians losing in Game 7. It's like, wh- who is your audience here, man? That's the whole point. They Punching want him to him go to a face. big market. Yeah, okay. Uh, how surprised are you that Lindor had such a meh season? Um, very. I, I thought he'd be like an MVP contender. I don't know. He just would have been the type of story he would script on his way out the door, I feel like. And in fairness, um, this is like a four and a half win pace season if this is normal. So it's not really bad here. been fine, but they needed spectacular. Yes. And they're going to need spectacular. And he might be the most important person in this series, in my opinion. I mean, they need... If you can assume Jose Ramirez is going to either hit pretty well or not get much to hit, then you need Francisco Lindor to be on base for when that happens. It, they need like they have such an advantage. If the top of the lineup is hitting well, with four switch hitters in a row in a playoff game, when a reliever has to throw face at least three batters, like that can be such an advantage. I thought it was going to be an advantage all season. It didn't really matter. I don't think we really even noticed it because they were just never hitting. They were never threats. It doesn't matter who was on the mound. Um, so th- he's he's important. Um, he, he said today, I asked him, like, what would you tell him? Again, this is such a different team than 2018. I think I counted, this could be completely off, so don't quote me on this. I think I counted that. Only nine of the players from the 2018 playoff roster are still on it. And so I said to Lindor, I'm like, what do, you, what do you tell all these young kids who have never experienced this? You have such a young team around you. And he said, enjoy it and, or enjoy the ride. And if you want to be famous, this is the time to do it. Well, he's always seemed to have a knack for that big moment. They're going to need that. I think he's really important. So the playoffs are like the, the Undertaker. Just come out and... Make somebody famous. Let's talk a little bit about lineup construction because it's fantastic to talk about lineup construction, but more so who should be playing in these games because the outfield is what it is, but you're still trying to pick through to find some production there. And down the stretch, for as poorly as he started the year and as bad as the numbers look overall, I think Jordan Luplo's played himself into playing even against righties because. Ever since I wrote about Tyler Naquin and all the good things that he was doing, he just fell completely off a cliff. So I'll take credit for that one. Uh, I, would, I, I think we've seen better at-bats and some maybe more authoritative at-bats from, from Josh Naylor. I would rather see Luplo instead of Naquin. Am I crazy? I don't know. I mean, what's weird is Luplo had more at-bats against righties this year than lefties. Uh, I, don't, I mean, I know they wanted to get him going. I know nobody else was hitting but he hit 128 against righties. He ended up hitting 270 with a 785 OPS, I think, against lefties, which certainly isn't otherworldly like he was last year against lefties, but it's better than what most of those outfielders are going to give you. So Did you I, know over his final 22 games, he put up an 854 OPS? No, you didn't. Uh, no, I didn't. But I could tell that he was... The eye test told me he was swinging a better bat. <laughs> Uh, I would like to see Naylor's been stinging the ball. Naylor's been stinging the ball lately. I wouldn't mind seeing him against righties, Luplo against lefties. The other thing is they don't have three outfielders to face lefties. Luplo 
I guess they like the shields every day in center. And who else? Mercado? Yeah, he's, he's looked terrible. And I am all for, I was all for playing him throughout the year because I think he's got a higher ceiling. Uh, and I, he means more to your future to get him going. But heading into the playoffs, he still has given them nothing. So, I, I mean, I, I don't have this firm leg to stand on to shout why he should be playing more. Like, I, I, I have no reason to say that. My thought is I think Luplo and Naylor have had better at-bats going into the postseason for whatever it's worth. And those would be the two guys that I would just be looking to, to play. Pretty much, even against Hap, I would not even consider leaving Naylor in there. Yeah, they're back to needing a right-handed power bat, which I was thinking about this this morning, and then I led down a really dark path where I don't want to start thinking about Nolan Jones's future as a platoon left fielder. But um, yeah, I don't, they they need another bat against lefties. I don't like Daniel Johnson is left-handed. Bradley Zimmer's left-handed. I guess everything in my mind was predicated on Framil Reyes being an outfielder, and that never happened. Or then Domingo Santana right. sticking with the team, and that never happened. And they never really found a consistent third starter against lefty pitchers, which is why I wonder if then the Yankees will just go with J-Hap in game three. I mean, all these guys are going to be on a short leash anyway. So the minute they get into any trouble, you're going to be going to the bullpen on both sides. And the Indians at least have an advantage there where they've got some starters in the pen that can give them a lot of length. I mean, Tristan McKenzie could be an absolute weapon, not just in the opening round, but throughout the postseason. If they leave him in the bullpen, Mm -hmm. it's a guy that comes in and throws a couple of innings with the extension that he gets on the pitches and the way that it, He's, he's got a good spin rate if he keeps the ball up in the zone. And if you pair that with somebody maybe that comes out of a different arm slot or a different extension, that's going to look like he throws 102. So I think that's, a, that's an incredible weapon to have. And as I was pleased to see, you know, the velocity still look good in the bullpen. I think that is somebody that could be, oh God, I hate saying it, an X factor in the series, Zach. Whoa. Which team has the better X factor? That determines who wins. Uh, I don't know. X factor coming this j- fall on... What station? I don't know what that station was. Wasn't it like X Pac and Just Incredible? X Pac. As far as the rest of the bullpen goes, are you back to 100% confidence in Brad Hand? Because if you look at the totality of the season, dude was incredible numbers wise. Maybe. I mean, he seeks out criticisms, so uh, he might be listening. So I trust him implicitly, and him throwing 89 is fine with me because he just gets the job done. Um, look, I, he's not, I'd feel more comfortable if his fastball was 94 miles an hour just because he wouldn't have to be as perfect to succeed. But he has been close to perfect this season, especially since August 1st. So who am I to say that he just doesn't have the stuff anymore? I mean, he's proven it. And you look throughout the rest of the bullpen, and he's as trustworthy as anyone out there. I mean, Oliver Perez has shown, you know, he's, what, 39 years old. I mean, he's not going to be... Flawless out there. He's been a little shaky lately. Karen Check has had hiccups. I still would trust him because of the stuff. That, that there isn't. They have some pieces. Like I, I know people got really tired of Phil Maton pitching in high leverage situations, but I understood what they were trying to do. You know, he had been so good early in the season. They just wanted to build that trust and see what he was capable of handling. And I think they learned that he probably shouldn't be pitching in the ninth inning of a tie game. Um, but like Whitgren, Perez, like what, who, give me your top five high leverage relievers in order. 
in terms of trust. But what it doesn't matter. Five doesn't matter. I'm concerned about three, really. Who are the three yeah. guys at the end that are trying? You're trying to slam the door with. That's fine. Okay, three. The top three would be. I just think. It, wait, I mean, do I like go like in if, reverse if, order? Am I thinking yeah, most if you trusted? Make it more dramatic. Well, no, that would be least trusted up to most trusted. So that would be the opposite of how I'm finished. I, I don't know what I'm saying here. I would have to say that... I mean, I just had to... I watched the America's Got Talent finale with my wife earlier tonight that we have been sitting on for a week or two. And they had the final 10, and then they got they eliminated one person at a time. You don't need to drag it out like that. Oh, my gosh. All right, top three guys would be Tristan McKenzie, Brad Hand, and James Karinchek. In what order? No, I'm not dragging it out. I'm just giving you all the results right now. Good night, everybody. Wow. Thanks for voting. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I am completely. I, I, I am completely in love with the idea of Tristan McKenzie handling some high leverage innings. Ah, uh, you know whether or not he can handle the mental side that goes with that. I don't know. We, none of us know. We, we don't know if James Karinchek can handle that. He's never been put in a situation like that in in the postseason. But right now, with the way that Hand is pitched, I trust him the most in the bullpen. As shocking as it is to say that, but he also finished the year. I think we gave him so much criticism along the way. In the early part of the year, we were talking about why he, well, neither one of us is very fond of the closer role. But if you're going to think of these traditional roles, neither one of us really got why you're throwing this guy to middle relief instantly. Uh, maybe at the time you thought Karen Check should be handling the, the, the higher leverage situations, but... Hand rebounded and had as good a year statistically as he's ever had. In fact, if you look at strikeout minus walk rate, which is kind of a handy tool to see how many bats a guy's missing, how many guys he's putting on base via the walk, and it was the best year of his career as far as that goes. And I, correct me if I'm wrong, he didn't allow a home run all year either. So those, the, as far as the three true outcomes go, Brad Hand was really good this year. I know that below the surface, the velocity is going to be a question until it's not, and it probably will always be now as this part of his career unfolds. But if you're talking about strikeouts, walks, and limiting home runs, he did all those things this year. So I think I would trust him the most of anybody right now in the bullpen. Yeah, and I think, and I'm guilty of this, but because he doesn't have the velocity he used to, we tend to just forget about the fact that he is like, one of the best sliders in baseball, and it's really hard to square up. And sure, it would be even more effective if paired with a 95 mile an hour heater. But okay, it's God, really we get it. You're you're not all in. <laughs> no, I, I the McKenzie thing is interesting. It's really interesting. Um, and what a story. I uh, we were thinking this was going to be another lost season for him. He hadn't pitched in a real game in two years, and he presses everybody with his six starts and then the velocity is ticking down. Oh, let's throw him in the bullpen and he's back throwing 94 again. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting point because I'm with you where like Wittgren and Maton and Oliver Perez are fine. And during the regular season, I have no problem inserting them into a close game and usually they get the job done, but this is a different beast. Um, that's really interesting. I also think, I mean, your leash has to be so long with Bieber um, it's maybe we'll look back and say, hey, it's a good thing he threw 118 pitches against the Tigers in a 10-run game because his pitch count should be like 130 <laughs> for game one because he's not going to pitch game Again? two or game three. Right. And then if the Indians advance, you get four days off, I think. The, the next series is until October 5th, so he would be on plenty of rest. 
And so, yeah, let him go crazy. And then you don't have to rely on the bullpen as much in game one. And you can use anyone you want in games two and three. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. This this is weird. I, I hadn't even thought of that, but it does impact the way you manage. Typically, you're thinking, you know, would you have to bring a guy back on short rest? Or you're thinking, uh, how, how, do, how would a an ace starter come back in a late in a series out of the bullpen. Well, you're not going to do that if it's three days in a row. I don't think. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you're just in a situation where you had to go, you know, a tons of extra innings and guys have just logged tons of, of innings to, to cover the first two games and you're deep in game three and you need somebody to come out of the bullpen. Maybe, but you're not really thinking about that. If you're in a position to win game one, then yeah, you're going to keep your foot on the gas pedal as long as possible. How do you mesh that with also putting yourself in a position where you don't leave him into a game too long where he's fatiguing, where you see he gives up the three-run home run? Maybe 117 is, is his limit then. Because <laughs> 118 runs <laughs> what, what, that home run. Once you get to 100, you just start warming guys up, even if there's nobody on base? Yeah, I don't know. This is why uh, Sandy Almar gets paid the first base coach bucks. The longer this postseason unfolds, the obviously the bigger the story it will get because I don't I, do people even know nationally that he has managed the team because you know we, we've seen some of the the gaffes that he even he has admitted later yeah I see what I could have done differently and I wish I would have done differently or maybe I learned from this situation you know we've seen some of those things but when you talk about manager of the year uh, most national writers aren't paying attention to that sort of thing or they don't know that he left Bieber in a game or he he has two catchers on the bench, but he's still letting Sandy Leone get a big at-bat. You know, they aren't following pitch by pitch, at-bat by at-bat. And I'm seeing manager of the year uh, candidates and potential voting and people putting their opinions out on it, and nobody has said Sandy Alomar. And to me, if I think of a, about a team like the Indians who makes the playoffs in the position that they do, we, we talk about all the offense that they don't have, uh, and to step in, to a situation where you're not supposed to be the manager and you lead the team to where the Indians are currently, that would be a national story where he should be getting love, regardless of all of the in-game things that we've pointed to and said that it's sort of head-scratching. Does does anybody know that he's managing the team? (laughs) Well, all he has said is how badly he wants Francona to come back and how he wasn't asking for this. So (laughs) does he even want that? I mean, I, I think what you said would definitely fit the national narrative. Um... I mean, like Don Mattingly, I think, is going to win National League Manager of the Year. And it's that same thing. It's like, oh, well, they had COVID and they exceeded expectations. Meanwhile, no one mentioning the Cardinals manager. They had an outbreak themselves. Um, But because they were expected to be decent, like that doesn't count, I guess. I don't know. Um, The thing is, so I inquired about this because a a reader had asked. I hadn't really given it too much thought just because that's not my vote. And... You're right. Like we we see the faults more just because we we see it day to day. Um, but I inquired, and other people then inquired, and we think he's not eligible because Francona is still technically the manager. So these wins and losses are going on Francona's record. And yes, how dare we ruin the sanctity of the manager of the year award? Meanwhile, the guy could just be fired halfway into the next season, and none of this even matters. Yeah. So. Uh, it's that's why this is another layer to this where like Andre Knott was telling me I think yesterday he's like watch this team win the World Series and then that's gonna that book is gonna have more chapters than any book anyone's ever it's gonna be like war and peace 
you think about all the layers to this and the, the things that have happened and the twists and turns and um, yeah, that's just that's a, a big part of it that you're right. It seems like it should be even bigger. We're not gonna do a random Indian of the week this week because oh. I instead wanted to reflect back on a game that we, we sort of touched on earlier in the podcast. And we do thank everybody. The Enrique Wilson game? Indians uh, you knew it. swimming to the plate? He was already a random inning of the day once, so we can't revisit that now. Uh, and thank the it, Indians-Yankees th- game where the Indians hit three home runs in one inning? Would that be the immortal hard-hitting Mark Witten? That's one. Yeah, that epic bat flip to end all bat flips. Was, uh, Who was, it? was it him and David Justice and Manny Ramirez? Uh, maybe. I'll take your word was for it. Tommy, you can... Tommy maybe in there? Tommy might look been. that up. Tommy playing? There was probably a lefty on the mound. We can't have that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I wanted to revisit game two of the, the 2017 LDS Yankees Indians at Progressive mm. Field. The reason being, I mean, we have Indians and Yankees, but imagine because, you know, we sat there and watched that comeback and we chronicled it at the time. And I think we, we even had an emergency podcast. Uh, maybe a day later when we were in New York getting ready for game three. And at the time we're talking about this team, just it looks completely unstoppable. They have, not only are they talented, but they seemingly have that magic that they can take a game like game two was and come back and win uh, really a, a game that they were dead. Imagine us sitting there and somebody drops in from the future and says, hey guys, by the way, this is the last playoff game that the Indians will win until 2020 begins. And by the way, I need to tell you about 2020. And then they just like <laughs> fade into nothingness. And instead of maybe giving us some useful information, they told us that crap about the Indians. But imagine, imagine that's the case, telling yourself that the Indians were going to win another playoff game entering the 2020 playoffs. You would have been, there's no way you would have believed that. No, I would have assumed everybody just got just melted from the humidity in New York that week. That's all I remember about that trip. Um, and the desserts. The desserts were still on, oh on point. That's why I'm glad the series is taking place in Cleveland, because no one deserves to travel to Yankee Stadium for a series and not benefit from Yankee Stadium press dining, and there's no press dining this season. Um, yeah, I, I remember thinking that because of the magnitude of the comeback, like the Yankees needed to win that game, right? They had done everything right. They had gotten to Kluber. It seemed like a foregone conclusion. It was going to be 1-1 going back to New York with the Yankees in the driver's seat. And that's such a deflating loss for them that I was thinking there was no way the series was going to go back to Cleveland for a game five. Especially, and then, like when game three was, I mean, that was the one nothing game. And you even felt then that, like, based on how close that was, I remember thinking, like, I was pretty sure the Indians were going to win game four. Well, they were bringing back Bauer on short rest, and he was just masterful in game one of that yeah. series. And it then just, like, the wheels fell off. And the Gio Urshela liner off his shin. <laughs> oh, you mean, like, the best offensive third baseman in baseball right now? Gio Urshela, that guy? Yeah, um, yeah I, that, that's, it's weird because we even... So, so that team was poised... To win a World Series. I mean, they were the Vegas favorites. Obviously, it didn't happen. And I remember, because we recorded an end-of-season podcast at like 3 a.m. in the press box after Game 5, if you recall. And 
Yeah, I think we all assumed the team was still going to be good. I don't think we knew yet that like they were going to be stagnant that winter, and it was they were that they really were on the way down. They weren't going to spend to address their issues. They were dangling, starting the process of dangling their starting pitching to see if they could swap, make a trade from a surplus, and so. In my mind, it was year two of a sustained run, and I would have guessed that, okay, even if they somehow shit the bed in the series, 2018 and 2019, they should still be a playoff team. Nobody else in the division looked like a threat. So yeah, I, I certainly would not have believed you, and then when you evaporated into thin air when you started talking about 2020, I think I would have been pretty scared. So I was looking at that game, uh, t- two teams traded pair of runs in the first inning Indians actually came back to take a 3-2 lead in the bottom of the second inning and then things just fell apart for Kluber in the third that's where he got yanked he gave up six runs they've they put a four spot on your your ace even though he's pitching in game two and then Clevenger comes in in the fifth gives up a couple more runs so I mean this game is completely out of hand the Yankees already had eight runs and that's what leads you to the bottom of the sixth and then you had Chad Green playing his role in this after CC Sabathia exited. Now, was that a game where they were upset that they had pulled CC so early? I think maybe that was the narrative in New York. He ended up being charged with four runs, two of them earned. But the thing that often goes unlooked in that game, if you remember, Lonnie Chisenhall was at the plate, who was pinch hitting, and he got hit by a pitch, but the pitch actually mm-hmm. looked like it glanced off the knob of the bat. He ended up being awarded first base on the hit-by-pitch, and I, I'm pretty sure they even went to replay review, and he was still awarded first pit, first base, and it was like a borderline could really go either way, and maybe even, if you're being honest, probably say that was a foul ball, but that's what ended up loading the bases for one Francisco Lindor, who clubbed it off the, the foul pole. The weird thing about that grand slam, though, when he hit it, the Indians were still down by a run, but in my mind, the Indians had just gone ahead. It felt, and with the way the crowd reacted to that grand slam, mm-hmm. uh, the ballpark was shaking. Um, it wasn't obviously to the level of, of Rajay Davis, but if it was, uh, if you're looking on a scale of one to ten, as far as just absolutely crazy home runs that maybe you weren't even expecting, but just were huge momentum shifters, that was probably an eight or a nine. Incredible grand slam, and then of course they tie well, it. Well, I, I, what, wait, an I, later? I completely, yeah. So that's that's the thing. Like, I think everybody assumes that that tied the game. Yeah, right. And no one remembers. Wasn't it Jay Bruce? Yeah, it was a pitch he hit over the left field wall. That had ended up tying the game, and then they, and then nobody remembers that. Did, did Jan Gomes walk it off? He did. Down and the third who base got the line. Win. Nobody remembers who got the win. <laughs> I'm sure Hoinsey remembers that Josh Tomlin got the win. In fact, I wrote... He pitched well. I wrote that he... Because you had Gomes, who was overlooked, and Tomlin, who was overlooked, and they both played a huge role in that game, and I I wrote about those those two playing a huge role in that game. But I'm sure Hoinsey remembers that Tomlin got the win in that game, so that was the all-important thing. Must be remembered. Get that in the lead. One day I'm going to tell a story of Hoinsey and I discussing, like, our MVP ballots from this year or past ballots and just all the hilarity that has ensued and the certain things that we consider and say back and forth. It's, it's phenomenal. How much hair did you lose? I mean, you have such great hair, but how much did you lose 
trying to pick apart the MVP race. So I did one of those things where, you know, you, you're doing something and you, maybe it's like homework or you're writing an essay or taking a test or something. You stare at it and you stare at it and the longer you, or I even do this when writing an article. It's like sometimes the more I read something, I, you know what, this always happens when writing a book. You read a chapter for the 98th time and on like the second version, it was the best thing you've ever written. But after the 98th time you go through it, it sucks and you're just like doubting yourself. And so I'm staring at this MVP ballot. And the longer I look at it, the more I contemplate, the less certain I was about it. Like starting to ask questions that I was completely sure about an hour earlier. And so finally, I think in just like a random fit of someone else hacking my body and controlling me, I just clicked submit. So I just would stop. Wait, so wait, that I, seems like the bigger story that somebody logged in as you in your body. <laughs> like you kind of buried the lead there. <laughs> um, but because of that, I honestly don't even remember what the order is outside of maybe the top four. Um, <laughs> so in other words, Zach is just as anxious as you to see who he voted for. <laughs> well, I have, I can look it up, but I, I just didn't want to think about it anymore. And I'm, I'm like, I, I don't want to say that I like, I don't want this to sound like I didn't put effort into it and it was sloppy and haphazard. Um, I put a ton into it, but it reached a point where it's like, the more I deliberate this, the mm. more I'm just going to talk myself out of yeah. things that I don't need to talk myself I, out of. I feel like that happens anytime you sit down to write some sort of analysis piece on, you know, somebody is scuffling at the plate or somebody who's doing really well at the plate or a pitcher that's doing something. And the deeper you dig, the more you find, eventually you just have to say, enough. We'll cover more of this in a future article, maybe if it's in, intriguing or maybe if this trend continues. But if you continue to dig, it's like, okay, he's doing this. Well, why is he doing that? Well, he's doing that because of this. Well, why is he doing this? Well, he's doing this because of that. Well, what happens if this? Is... So you would just never stop. You have to set yourself some sort of limit, some sort of line that you're just saying, this is it. Because no matter what you looked at with that MVP voting, you could find some reason to pick somebody as far down, I think, as probably fourth or fifth on that ballot. The guy that you turned in yeah. fourth or fifth could probably be swayed to be up near the top. What's interesting is, I, and I figure And we should point out, you can't reveal your final order. Correct. I believe that at least three players will receive first place votes, maybe even more. But what's interesting is, you know, I was talking to a colleague from uh, a different, who covers a team in a different division. And it's amazing. I mean, I watched tons of Jose Ramirez. I watched plenty of Jose Abreu this year. Um, Nelson Cruz. I mean, think about like the people you got to see for a sixth of the games you covered. And then there are people in other divisions who didn't watch those players play once. And so just talking to another colleague and, and some of the players he was considering for the last couple spots in his MVP ballot, like those guys never even crossed my mind. Or they didn't come up in any any statistical search that I, I put on. Um, and that doesn't mean, I mean, maybe they're worthy, maybe they're not. I, even after hearing their names, I wouldn't have put them on my list. But um, it's just, it's really interesting, the different perspectives. And people have just as much conviction in those people you never would have considered as, as you might for the guys who you thought were no-brainers for the 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th spots. If I had a vote, I think I would have gotten Ramirez one. Ramirez won Abreu two, Bieber three. It's probably how I would have turned in the top three. But it is Holy just Homer. But it is just as messy from four down to mm -hmm. God ten. 
I mean, you. I mean, you. As you were walking through it, you sent me a couple. DJ of, LeMayhew hit like four sixty this you year. You sent me so. a couple of rough drafts to see if it's something that somebody would look at and say, "Are you nuts?" And I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I can't really help you. This is difficult. This is this is tough because you don't have one hundred sixty-two games for all those top tier guys to separate themselves from the second tier, and those guys to separate themselves from the third tier. So yep. yeah, that it was crazy, but. Uh, Appreciate all your hard work on that, man. I'm sure it'll hey, pay I off. I mean, you said Luplo's numbers in September. Apple Podcasts, Google Stitcher, Spotify is where you can find the podcast. Do you have a prediction for this series? My God. No, I don't. Your predictions I, I, always go so well, so I figured you could have yeah. one. This means nothing. Don't put any stock into this. I, I'll say Yankees in three. I don't have any feel. I think this is God, you are an negative. absolute. I think this. Why don't is you tweet absolute, more about Tristan McKenzie's velocity, you jerk? I think this is an absolute coin flip. Okay, I'll say Indians in three. <laughs> this is an absolute coin Frickin flip. Freaking Homer. And the thing that has been so enlightening to me is uh, Lindsey Adler, who covers the Yankees. We collaborated on a, a piece just analyzing the series as the best we can, which you can't do well because who the hell knows what's going to happen. Um, Seeing Yankees fans' comments has been incredible because if Indians fans didn't want to see the Yankees in the first round, the Yankees didn't want to see the Indians in the first round. And their fans think it's a foregone conclusion that uh, DJ LeMahieu and Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton will be golfing on Thursday. So I, who knows what the hell is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. As I said, this is March Madness on crack. <laughs> who would thought that a fan base that has four bazillion pennants hanging up and all these titles to, to brag about. I would uh, think that they're going to be golfing so soon. I don't know. I think Yankees in three. Oh, Here's the so shock. Negative. I think the Indians lose game one, win game two, but still lose game three. Let's go I completely ass backwards. I, agree with you. I think I agree. You know, to make things up to everybody for these awful, awful predictions, let's just reveal who you got in the... Uh, the MVP balloting. So for uh, for tenth on this, we had Zach going with. The Selvius Godcast, featuring Zach Meisel and TJ Zuppi, is presented by our supporters at Anchor. To help support the podcast, visit Anchor.fm/SelviusGodcast. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, we sure hope you do. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. And if you have suggestions, drop us a DM on Twitter at Selby is Godcast. Thanks for listening.